And good morning to you. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and we welcome you once again to Calvary Church. I want to spend some time studying in God's Word. We encourage you to have your Bibles in hand. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair rack in front of you. And there is also an outline in today's bulletin that will increase your listening pleasure. And so I encourage you to take a look at that as well. I also want to continue on the theme. We certainly appreciate all who have served in our country. I want to highlight one individual as well. Vietnam vets really were never given the kind of dignity that they deserved. And I remember being in my college years and remembering Kent State and a lot of scenarios where Vietnam veterans were coming back. And uh, to the shame of many in our country, were not treated as they should be. We recently watched one of our own Vietnam vets, Dave Bowman, pass away and entered into God's presence. I want to highlight another one, Howard Rutledge. He is an individual that written a book called In the Presence of Mine Enemies. He was in Heartbreak, which was the POW camp, similar to what uh, John McCain had gone through. And uh, it was while he was in that camp, sort of a reality began to hit him. He shares in this book the story of his life, that much of his growing up years, he really didn't have time for the Lord or for church. His wife would kindly and gently suggest, would you like to go to church with me? And she would always be put off. And he said, I'm too busy, I'm hard playing, I'm hard working. So he never had time for the things that his wife and family were involved with until he was shot down as a pilot and ended up in this heartbreak POW camp. And there in that camp, he began to realize the deficit that was in his own heart in his life. There was no church in that camp. There was no Bible. There was no pastor. There was no Jesus with him. And as he went through that experience, he came to this conclusion, and I throw it on the screen, he says, I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life. It took prison to show me how empty life is without God. And that takes us to the point where we want to join together with Jesus Christ. To recognize that this is coming to church and worshiping and studying God's word and praying together and taking communion. is not some sort of religious effort to somehow appease an angry God, but it's actually the full dimension of who we should have in Jesus Christ that this is the hunger and the desire of our heart that we would gather together as we are doing today. And we come to a wonderful text that is really a powerful text, and I encourage you to have it in hand, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, where what this text is, is really, think about it, it is the meat and potatoes of the gospel, or if you're vegan, it is the tofu and the legumes of a, the gospel of Jesus Christ because we don't want to offend anyone here. In Mark chapter 10, verse 32, it says this in the passage. Jesus is walking along with his disciples, as he was accustomed to do in those days, and it says and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, referring to himself, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. 
And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which with I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I am to drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on the right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten, the other ten, listening to these selfish, proud men, they began to feel indignant with James and John, probably because they didn't think of it first. <laughs> calling them to Jesus, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the core. Everything else is extra, but that's the core of Christ and what he invites you and me into. And I look at this passage and think of three things that we want to learn this morning. It is, first of all, this. That Jesus Christ is the model, the sacrifice that he has given his life. He goes together, he grabs them silently, pot privately away from the rest of the crowd, and he tells them his story. This is the third time that Jesus has outlined the tragedy that is about to come upon him. And so he describes it in great detail. As I listed in the outline, you can read it in the text. But this is the most specific Jesus has become in telling about the sacrifice that is going to be his. And then I list on the other side the fulfillment of those things. And sort of in a little side note, this is once again verification of prophecy given, prophecy fulfilled, and the veracity, the truthfulness of God's word and the person of Jesus Christ in an apologetic sort of a way. So we see this tremendous message, a message that many of us are familiar with, that Christ was called into this, and he freely and voluntarily has moved into this sacrificial role that he has. The response of the people that are surrounding them, as you read in the text, is that some were amazed and some were fearful. The word amazement has the sense of being standing still. The word of fearful even has a sense of awe. But there's a variety of responses that these people have to this message. And it may be some of the responses that you and I have, and that's where we want to go with this text. What is our response to the core conviction of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead, and that he has modeled for us what sacrifice should look like, and now he invites us into that world. Jesus didn't describe it there, but I love this Socrates idea of following someone. Socrates put it this way, when you want to follow me as much as you want to breathe, then you are ready to learn, then you're ready to follow. The response that Jesus was looking for was probably something more along that lines. Not standing back in amazement, like this is some sort of a party. Not standing back in fear of what he may ask for me to do that may change my life, but simply saying, I choose to follow you. So what does it mean? Here's the problem that came to these passages, to this, his disciples, I should say. They are hearing Jesus cover the story of what he's going to do. He's going to be sacrificially given on the cross, spit upon, mocked, scourged, attacked in brutal ways. He describes all that, and notice the response of John and James. John and James, 
the two sons of Zebedee. They were fiery guys, to be sure. But their response to Jesus is stunning. They came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now just think about that for a moment. Jesus has just described the most brutal kind of death anyone could ever go through. And just imagine John and James as they're listening to Jesus describe this brutality of death. What's going on in their minds? I wonder when the kingdom starts if I get to be at the top ranks next to Jesus. They are like listening to Jesus the way I will sometimes listen to people. As someone is describing for themselves the situation, and I get this from my own family, my own daughters. They say, Dad, aren't you listening? And generally... listen very well but these men are not listening very well to a savior Jesus Christ a man that they have journeyed with for years who has just outlined the most destructive form of miserable death about can I be great in the kingdom as Jesus describes the suffering of the savior and so I think about some applications Application of selfishness, number one, is this inability to listen empathetically. Now, there's two levels to that. On the one level, the more shallow level, is the inability of some of us who say we love someone, like our spouse or our children, as in my case, as they recite to me some situation or some concern, and, and I'm not really tuned in because I'm thinking about my response. Or someone else is telling you about their surgery. This I've had this. Oh, I had my knee replaced with a titanium metal. And as someone else is telling me about their knee replacement, I'm thinking about my own knee replacement. And what I'm going to tell them about my knee replacement, because I'm not interested in their knee replacement. I'm more interested in telling them about my, my knee replacement. So that's the shallow level of listening empathetically, of not entering into the world of people who are suffering. But there is a deeper level of listening empathetically. And this is what strikes me. Just think about this for a moment. Just think with me. Not that you aren't thinking with me. But just, I was thinking about this. There's this capacity for Jesus who comes to us in death, burial, and resurrection. And the details of his death are miserable. And then he invites us to be his follower, to be his disciple to journey with him as the disciples here on the road. We journey not on the roads of Israel, but we journey with him in the spiritual paths that God has ordained for each of us. And my failure on my part is that when he tells me all that he's done for me, and then I push back and say, well, Lord, that sounds like it's too hard for me. That sounds like I might have to suffer that doesn't go according to my personal desires. You're asking for my finances in ways that I don't want to give. And I begin to push back on God saying, Lord, I, like John and James, I want you to do for me what I want to have done for me. And Lord, you're asking for something much higher than what I'm willing to give. 
And when I push back and say, I can't give that much to you. I can't give my life. I can't give in the sense of suffering or sacrifice. I can't give in terms of loving that person anymore. And here's, you know, I got a scathing letter about a year ago from someone. Do you realize that pastors get really scathing letters? We do. And I got this scathing letter for someone. And I just felt a lot of anger against that person. Because they were unfair, they were rude, they were condescending, they were offensive. And I just really wanted to call them up and, and really ball them out. And it's all I can do when I see that kind of attack to offer back forgiveness, love, and grace. If I attack back with revenge and I hold a grudge of bitterness, if I strike back in an angry tone and an aggressive way, I'm like John and James. Because Jesus says, I have invited you into my life. I suffered for you. I died for you. I rose again for you. I ask you to follow me. But then I say, but God, when it, when it really comes to the crunch time and you're asking me to forgive someone I don't want to forgive or be loving to someone I don't want to be loving to, you want me to love the unlovable, forgive the unforgivable, pray for the stubborn out there? You want me to do that? I can't do that. Didn't you see what they did to me? And I say, God, I want you to do for me what I want you to do for me. I'm not worried about doing what you asked me to do. I become like John and James. And I don't listen empathetically to enter into the world of Christ and the world that he has created for me to live in. That's the risk. There are the risks that we run, that it's not so much what I do, but it's so much of what my heart is in response and submission to give to him my whole life, regardless of the cost. There's some other sacrificial things that we will not do, that the selfishness, the subtle form of selfishness, it's pursuing my prestige and my power, uh, those things that I want to pursue that are maybe not in accordance with what God wants for me. I, I love this little statement here, but compared to Matthew, it's a stunning it says, and John and James said to him, Lord, we want to sit on your right and your left hand. We want to have this position of power and prestige. We want people to think wonderful things about us. And so Jesus has outlined his suffering, and they're thinking about the position in the kingdom. Man, that's total disconnect. Because God never promises that kind of life. And then to add salt to the wound, what Mark didn't say, Matthew did say. And Matthew said this, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus and said, will you give my sons the right hand and the left hand of the kingdom? It's kind of like, would you go to a job interview and have your mother come alongside and sort of a lobby for the position? You're up for a promotion. And you bring your mommy in to tell your boss that you deserve this raise. And it's, ins it's insane. Some people believe that this mother of John and James is actually the aunt of Jesus. We don't know for sure. So maybe there's a little nepotism going on there. I don't know. But it's embarrassing. And yet I don't want to be like John and James where, God, I want power. I want prestige. I want possessions. I want position in life. I want things that make me feel better about me. And if serving you will cost me power, position, and prestige, no thank you. And so God says, I don't 
need people who are after their own position. I want people who are my servants, who follow me. He says there that uh, the problem with the subtle form of selfishness is that it deny the reality of what it means to really follow Jesus. And there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I'm going to go on and show you that sometimes Jesus allows us to go through those things, creates the division in our lives, but he wants to set up something better. Jesus Christ wants us to overcome that subtle form of selfishness where I commit to things, but I'm not willing to pay the price. James died, one of the first apostles to die, who followed Jesus. And they said, we can die with you. We can be baptized in the baptism with which you will be baptized. And that's what he's talking about, that you're going to die a miserable death. And James died that miserable death. Sometimes we don't want to have to pay the price of what it means to follow him. Remember my early years visiting with a young couple that was going to get married. And I said to this young bride-to-be that, you know, you're fiance is really a mess and he's, he's got drug problems he's got anger problems and you think you love him he says, oh i love him do you realize that if you marry him boy this is going to be a really really hard marriage but you're willing to make the commitment that it takes to continue to stay with this young man she's oh yeah i'll make that commitment i will do that and she's a she's a comes from a godly family and it's a lovely christian young girl at the time and so we married her, and it was about two years later they got divorced. And I thought, this is the struggle, that we make a commitment, but we don't realize the sacrificial cost of that commitment to continue forward, because I know it's not easy. I know for me it's not always easy. I remember my early years here at Carver Church, it was quite an interesting journey, as some of you have been on that journey with me. And I've never said this before, but actually in those first seven years, uh, coming to Calvary Church, I think I wrote my letter of resignation about three times. Because I said, Lord, I don't need this job. In fact, here's my selfishness. Here's how selfish I can be. Now that I'm old, this just doesn't matter anymore. I can just tell you anything. <laughs> but in my early years here, the first couple of years, I wrote my letter of resignation, thought about turning it into the elder board. Because I, I wanted to do it soon enough so I could go back to Lodi before they found a pastor. See, how selfish is that? See, now I feel very embarrassed that I shared that with you. But this is the way, this is the, this is the carnal side of me and maybe for some of us, where we know there's going to be a price to be paid, but we're not sure we want to pay the price to be all in for Jesus. There's a price to be paid as we financially are all in for him. There's a price to be paid for the time that we invest for him. It can throw our schedules off. It can change and rearrange the way we live our lives. There's a price to be paid to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus just is inviting us into it. And we don't want to be like John and James thinking about, well, what about me? What about my needs, Lord? And the Lord says, your needs will be taken care of. Just follow me. There's a price to be paid to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice is not always easy. In verse 42 and 45, he continues to talk to the disciples. And it says this, Calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be among the great shall be your servant. You know, we live where we honor the veterans who have fought the wars on earth. 
We also live amongst veterans who are in the midst of spiritual battles. This last week I was reading about Miango, Nigeria. In Miango, Nigeria, there is a chapel called Kirk Chapel, and it's with SIM. We used to refer to them as Sudan Interior Mission. It's an outstanding mission agency, and we have known many missionaries that have gone through that ministry. There are those that are of the Hall of Fame who follow Jesus. The graveyard that surrounds Miango, Kirk Chapel, is filled with graves, of course. And on those graves, you will find names like Ethel Arnold, born September 1, 1928, died September 2, 1928. Edith Arnold, her twin sister, September 1, 1928, September 4, 1928, those parents had hope for two more days of a life that would live. Douglas Kent Hay, born June 28, 1952, to June 28, 1952. Douglas Hay's father, Ian Hay, became president of SIM after having served here and lost his son on this mission field. Eileen Louise Whitmore, May 6, 1952 to July 3, 1955. 33 of the 56 graves are children. But these missionaries went to Nigeria with the hope of winning people to Jesus Christ. They followed the Lord in spite of the price that they would have to pay. I lo love the way Charles White talks about this particular scenario, this mission field. He says, the cost of spreading the news of God's grace is high, but it costs much more to make that grace available to us. Christians who have paid the price for spreading the news, but God paid the infinitely greater price on the cross to purchase our salvation. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, and then he concludes it this way. The only way we can understand the graveyard at Miango is to remember that God also buried his son on the mission field. I honor those veterans, our own Gail and Jean Van Deest, missionaries to Alaska, buried one of their own whose grave still remains in Alaska. So I honor those who have set a model for me of saying, I will go, I will do, I will serve, I will be there, I'm all in. It's not, Lord, what are you going to do for me? It's, Lord, what am I going to do for you? in a sacrifice. It's sacrifice that is described by Jesus in these three ways for me. It's to be humble in a world driven by power, to be a servant to any around you. It's to be a witness to attract others to Jesus Christ. That's what he's inviting us into, that kind of a world where what I do serves Jesus, but who my heart is serves Jesus. We've got a lot of great servants here at Calvary Church, and I honor them. Yesterday, I was Saturday, I went into the Fellowship Hall. Barbara Spiker has done an outstanding job of getting, collecting together a crew of people and a crew of things to put in shoeboxes that are going to children around the world through Samaritan's Purse. Just outstanding system. I wish you could have all seen the kind of good work that's being done. we got a crew that will be here tomorrow morning cleaning up what you leave behind. <laughs> so. And so we have so many servants who are going to be serving in Sunday school right now, serving in the nursery, serving over in second hour at 11 o'clock, serving. We've got so many servants. I invite us into doing things for Jesus. I invite us into the heart of Jesus. 
but sometimes it's more about attitude than deeds. It means I love unlovable people. I forgive those that don't seem to deserve forgiveness. It means I pray for those who are so stubborn and harsh. It means I encourage those that seem incorrigible. That's the heart of a servant. And to continue with the theme of veterans, I want to have you hear the story of another terrific veteran who in some ways is an image of Jesus Christ. His name is Desmond Doss. Hacksaw Ridge is a big movie that was put out about him, but I want to have someone really tell his story. Desmond Doss was a conscientious objector. He signs up for the army, he goes into the infantry, in his early years, in his early years as a conscientious objector, he signs up and the the sergeant cannot believe this guy will not take a gun, will not shoot anyone. And he is reviled, he is spit upon, he's beaten up because the elder of shoulders cannot understand how do you sign up for the army and you say you won't kill anybody. You can't do that. And he was persecuted because of the convictions of his heart. But then he joined and continued to join and serve and he went to Guam, went to the Philippines, and finally, his most heroic place was in Okinawa. I'd like you to listen a little bit more about Desmond Doss. Let's take a look. Only one man remained here on top during his job, and that was Desmond Doss, tending to the wounded and fallen. He felt compelled to get them off this ridge. For one thing, the word around his battalion was that the enemy would torture wounded soldiers under the cover of night. Now, many wounded were scattered all along this escarpment, Hacksaw Ridge, hiding in bushes, clinging to trees. Desmond had about 12 hours of light to get them down. He began by dragging them to the edge. And there he remembered something that would greatly help. A bowline knot he'd learned to tie as a kid. Desmond realized he could make the double loop bigger and slip a man's arms through them. Wrapping one end of the long rope around a shattered tree stump, he could lower the man down the cliff to those waiting under cover below. So that's what he did, scurrying around this ridge, dodging a terrifying mixture of mortar and machine gun fire. One wounded man after another, taken to the ridge, lowered with a bowline. The men looking up, could hardly believe what was happening. Every time I'd look, he was, he was there. He's letting our wounded down to the, the other people down below, the medics and one thing, the other, taking them on down back below where they could be taken away. One time he had one man on each arm. They were partially equipped, they could partially help themselves, and he was leading these one man under each arm, on with each arm, bringing them over there to let them down. I thought, this is amazing. How can this guy do this? Time after time, I saw dogs go back into, into the enemy, into the Japanese, and pick up wounded, uh, wounded, and bring them there and let them down on these ropes and one thing or another off of the escarpment. And the bullets were flying like, like bees or something. It was just it was miraculous. I, I couldn't understand how he could do this. Desmond kept praying, Lord, 
please help me get one more. And he kept succeeding. Even though when he had to stand up at the edge of the cliff to begin lowering each wounded man, the Japanese had a clear angle on his head and shoulders. Somehow, none of the bullets whizzing by caught this medic. Years later, in fact, one of those Japanese soldiers would actually recall that he had Desmond in his sights, but his gun jammed every time he pulled the trigger. This lone medic did spend 12 hours up here. He was preserving life with a vengeance. He joined the war to help and heal. That day, 75 men would owe their lives to him. He rescued 75 single-handedly under intense enemy fire without ever firing a gun. No one would ever forget that. After the war, Desmond Doss would be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor by President Truman. Fifteen heroes decorated by President Truman with a Congressional Medal of Honor. Then the conscientious objector hero, Corporal Desmond Doss, refused to fight, refused to kill. A medical corpsman, he displayed self-sacrificing valor in the care of the wounded. Now he receives the nation's highest military decoration and explains his view as a conscientious objective. I thank God for letting me do my part in this war and saving the lives of my fellow men. We're all fascinated by this kind of courage, of course. We all wonder what makes someone like this tick. What takes him to such a place far above human fears and weaknesses? Well, Desmond actually made the reason pretty clear. He spotlighted the source of his courage just a few days after saving 75 buddies. Captain Vernon had to put together one more assault on the Maeda escarpment. This one would prove the final one. Vernon tried to prepare his men for what he knew would be the fight of their lives. Some were new recruits sent in to replace the heavy casualties. And there was one man Vernon especially wanted along on this mission. He walked over to a medic who sat nursing a leg it injured in a tumble over the cliff. Captain Vernon said, Doss, I know you don't have to go on this mission, but the men would like to have you with them, and so would I. Desmond had become a type of paladin, a champion to his colleagues, guiding them, protecting them through prayer giving his total concentration to saving them and giving them aid. Then he noticed Desmond's eyes sunk deep into dark sockets. His shoulders slumped, exhausted. He hadn't even had time to change his cotton uniform, now covered in the dried blood of the men he'd saved. But this medic didn't hesitate. I'll go, Captain, he said. But then he asked permission to finish reading a passage of scripture. That's what he did regularly. That's what was sustaining him in these violent and bloody hours. His belief and trust in God gave him his courage and strength through these challenging times. I think there's a kind of a picture there, isn't that great? I'm gonna take that little extended story because I think it captures the heart and the soul of what Jesus is talking about at another level in terms of our spiritual wars we're in. Where Desmond Doss wasn't considered what's, it's all about him, 
It's all about saving lives, 75 men. And as he went back up to save more, he kept on saying and praying this prayer, Lord, give me one more. Give me one more. What would happen to those of us who are the followers of Jesus? If we're all in, we're all in, from financial to emotional to spiritual to mental to intellectual to acts of service to hearts of grace, we're all in to follow you, Jesus. Just give me one more that I could reach for you. And that image of him being given that medal, that ribbon, what a contrast to his early years when he was reviled by so many and then to be revered and in fact even wanted and desired to be part of the team. Early on, no one wanted him. At the end, they wanted him. Why? Because of a heart of sacrifice to serve and save those that he loves. And that drew people to himself. And that's what God wants for us. To be so sacrificial in our heart and our attitude and our deeds that it draws people to Jesus Christ. So that the fulfillment of this passage when Jesus then finally summed it up, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the ransom word means to pay a price to satisfy God's wrath and to free people from sin. We're all called to be part of this team that God has commissioned to go out to ransom more for the many that Jesus died for. And I invite us into that life, that no longer, Lord, what's in it for me? What about me? My position, my power, like John and James, but saying, Lord, I'm just here for you. I will love the unlovable. I will serve those in need. I won't look down on any because I am here to serve you and those you've called me to reach out to. That's life-changing. That's transformational. And it's costly. We may have to pay a personal price. We may be ridiculed in the face, as Jesus was, but he still invites us to live that life for him. And to help us to come back to know Jesus and to remember him and to be all on board, we're going to receive communion now. Communion is the bread and the cup. The bread symbolizes that body of Jesus that was brutalized. He was scourged. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was punctured with thorns and thistles. He was nailed to a cross. That body physically felt the pain that you and I should have felt, but he took our, pray, our place on that cross to ransom us from sin. And that blood that was shed on the cross that blood that spilt upon the ground, that blood that Jesus offered so that we could have the forgiveness of our sins. I invite any, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, you've never said, Lord, I want to believe in you. I ask for your forgiveness of my sins. I trust that you are the one who will ransom me from those sins. You have paid the price. I receive that payment in my behalf. Thank you as I commit my life to you. We want that for you as well. So let me pray for us and the elements will be passed as we then honor Jesus Christ by remembering his sacrifice for you and for me. Father God, I thank you that you have given to us examples on earth to remind us of the price that is paid for the freedoms we enjoy in our country. But also, Lord, these are examples that even show us a bigger picture of the freedom that you want us to enjoy in Jesus Christ, a freedom from sin, a freedom from the fear of death, a freedom from hell, 
so that we can know that we can have an eternal life with you forever. And for any who have never put their faith and trust in Jesus, as the means by which they can have that forgiveness, I invite you to pray with me now. God, I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died for me. He paid for my sins. I receive that by faith. Thank you for your forgiveness. And now, Father, we come to you remembering the body and the blood that sacrificed in our behalf. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.